Today on our panel, we have James Dog. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 97 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel we have James Zuber. Hello. Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. Pete Hodgson. Hello from Hollywood, California. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I just want to give you a quick reminder to go and support the shows by going to devchat.tv slash kickstarter and supporting my campaign there. Uh, we also have a special guest this week, and that is Michelle Totolo. Hi, everyone. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. So I am an iOS engineer over at Reddit. I've also done a lot of work with CocoaPods, and I am CTO and on the board of the nonprofit Women Who Code. You've probably seen some of my talks, or I occasionally write technical blog posts on uh, different aspects of software development. Very cool. So we kind of have a, a series of topics that we wanted to cover with you. Is there a particular area that you'd like to start with? We can jump in anywhere, I guess, because there's a long list to get through. <laughs> I think we should start with some hipster discussions. Ooh, there some we hipster go. discussions, okay. So hipster as in the whole decoupling and deconstructing of large code bases. <laughs> Deconstructionism as it applies to the context of something. It sounds like a, an art major's <laughs> I'm going to need to wait a while and grow a beard before we have this discussion. <laughs> well, if, if everyone needs to grow a beard, you'll be waiting on me a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tempted to keep abusing my hipster joke, but I'm not going to stop now. So what does this topic mean? Like, what, what are you talking about when you're talking about deconstructing or decoupling applications? It kind of means a couple different things. As a code base grows larger and more mature over time, you start wanting to kind of take out pieces that are really reusable so that you can make new applications, so that you can open source something, or just in general kind of encapsulate functionality in a very specific way. So like a good example of this is like your networking stack. Like at Reddit, we have a lot of APIs. I remember the first time I looked at our list of APIs on our developer website, I was just like, oh my goodness, this is a lot of calls. And it can be kind of really intimidating when you're dealing with something that's like that big. But it doesn't change very often, which is really great. So we're able to internally create our own little networking library because we know the APIs are stable. We know the responses, like we know all the patterns. And so we can do that. And it's a foundation not only for building multiple apps, but at some point, possibly in the future, it's a good component to open source. Okay, that makes sense. So we're talking about a situation where you, you're coming into a code base that maybe you're not that familiar with, that people have been working on for months, maybe years, and trying to figure out how can we reuse these components? How can we add up to our app? What are the goals? The goals are, at least when I'm looking at making separate libraries, is just separating out functionality because it's just really nice. <laughs> There's not another way to really say it. It's just as a code base gets bigger and larger, Alien Blue does this really, really well. And there's just like a ton of libraries like internally that have just been separated out because everything is super encapsulated. So, you know, it makes things a little bit harder because you're like, oh, I need to fix this bug in that library over there because it's happening in my app. But it also means you have versions of those things. So like 
back to the networking thing, if there's a new version of an API that comes out or the payload changes or they introduce a new error code, you can discreetly update that and make sure that you've captured both the old functionality in your history and like previous versions of the library, as well as moving forward, you can explicitly say, okay, we're going to be using this new key or new error code. And then when you get to the point where you're having multiple apps, like I did this when I was working at my last job on Threadless's two apps. We had a log or a checkout flow. So threadless.com, you buy t-shirts. Um, and the checkout flow for the two apps was pretty much exactly the same. There were some styling differences, but we were able to share a lot of that code to, you know, one, make sure that the experience was consistent between both apps, because when users download two apps by the same company, they expect it to be pretty similar. And then at the same time, you know, we only had to write it once, which was really great because then you can move faster, especially like in the whole consulting client work. Speed is really, really important. So it just just lets you work better and be more explicit about when you change things. So in that case of, or in either, either of those cases with the, with the network libraries, what was the mechanism for teasing those apart? Did you start off knowing that you were going to eventually want to have a separate library? Or, or was it kind of like build it and then realize like, oh, this is a reusable piece that we should be extracting? It kind of varies on where you are in the process. I've done a lot of apps from scratch. So like that's the thing when you do client work, it's like client comes over and it's like, we want this brand new app. But, you know, they don't usually care about that as much. <laughs> so if it's something that's, you know, short timeline, you know, they just kind of want it done. It's less important, unfortunately, to them for you to spend extra time doing that. But if you're working at a product company and you're kind of owning something, the earlier you start thinking about this, the better. Just because over time, I've done one of the other apps that uh, I inherited at a previous job had like a really, really tightly decoupled section that we were like, well, we should clean this up, get it out into its own thing. Cause it was, you know, its own component that they wanted to share with between a couple other apps and, you know, just going through and cleaning up imports. It took a while because, you know, this imported the thing we wanted to reuse imported this other header file that we needed for a specific reason. So you had to figure out, okay, are we using this other little chunk too, and then do you have like two different libraries because they share code? The earlier you can do it, the better, because then you don't have the problems with the thing you want to take out depending on everything else that's already in your code base. Yeah, so. I've definitely seen that before. It's kind of like a big snarled mess, and it's like pulling a thread out of a sweater. You start off just like, oh, I just want this one piece here, and then before you know it, the entire sweater's on the floor, and you're having to figure out how to knit it back together again. Yeah, and if you're doing something like the threadless.com checkout, um, that was actually a really fantastic example because, you know, there was a lot of styling that had to happen, and the two different apps were using, I forget which one of the apps, pulled in like a pod for making working with frames a lot easier. But the other app didn't have that. <laughs> so it was kind of like, okay, well, we want to use this library. So then you have to go through and add that as the dependency on the private pod that was the shared code um, and go through and kind of clean up the imports just to make sure that, you know, it, that little component could compile on its own instead of, you know, pulling in a font category and a color category and all of these other things. You know, it's a little bit more time, but it saves a lot of time later. So would you advocate for, let's say I'm, I'm on a Greenfield project today, like, I don't know, I work for a company and they've decided they finally are going to get around to building an iOS app. Would you advocate for going all the way to actually starting with separate libraries for separate things? Or is it just kind of more structuring the code so that there are some seams that you could slice up once you get to the point that it makes sense to make a library? Well, Seams are always really nice, especially when you start working on larger teams because you step on each other's toes less. So, you know, you can have one person working on the model layer, another person doing a bunch of UI stuff, and you don't end up having massive project file conflicts or, you know, you decide that, oh, we're going to change the naming scheme for our private methods to have an underscore or something, and you're going and changing the same files because that just gets really, <laughs> no one likes dealing with merge conflicts. So, Whenever I start an app, it's how much can we separate out stuff as possible, regardless of whether or not you plan on compartmentalizing things. Because I've seen some, you know, five, six-year-old code bases that don't have any of that. And then you go in to change one thing, but turns out there was this other thing over there that depended on it. And it's just really messy and, you know, really, really tightly coupled. 
Um, so doing anything like that is just like tearing your hair out. Cause you're like, well, you know, I just want to have like a custom text field so that the text field is always styled the same. That's actually turns out to be a lot of work when you're just kind of moving really fast and just being like, no, 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 we just need to get it done. Let's put it all in one view controller class. There's been, <laughs> <laughs> there was a good article uh, a couple of weeks ago on the mass or I think a talk, something like that. I'll find it and put it up in the pick section about, you know, a massive view controller and some strategies for making that less of a problem. Um, because it is a problem. <laughs> and the way, the, the way I kind of talk about that with to try and encourage people that, you know, decoupling stuff is good is our goal is to make, like arrange the software so you have to hold as little of it in pos- as possible in your head at once in order to make a change, right? Like, so if you, if you want to change the size of a font or something, you shouldn't have to understand the entire app and reason about what that change is going to make across the whole app just to do that thing, right? You want to limit the amount of work that your brain has to do in order to, to make each of these little changes. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to say dealing with these massive view controllers after you've been hacking code in there for two years is very painful. I've done it, and until you've dealt with the pain, you don't really understand how important doing things that we're talking about here is. Yeah. When you're working on this kind of separating your your stuff out, decoupling it or deconstructing it, how do you, trying to figure out how to phrase this question, how do you think about things? How, how do you inform your own choices so that your code is is reusable, is, you know, factored the way that we're, we're talking about? And so I'm sort of thinking about how, how do you put yourself in the right um, mindset or approach problems? It's really about looking ahead, which is kind of hard to do sometimes as everyone knows. <laughs> so it's, you know, you look at the app that you're building and you kind of over time, just like as you become a more experienced developer, you start to notice like programming patterns and, you know, solutions to those kinds of problems. You can also start to identify the places where you can draw that line. Things like networking, data persistence, models. Those are like the easy ones where it's like, well, we'll have a library that contains all of our app models separately because we know Hopefully your API doesn't change that much. A lot of times it does, but you can kind of encapsulate that separately. But then as the app gets bigger and you go through and start building a bunch of things, my kind of rule of thumb is that if I have to do something more than twice, then it deserves its own class, category, library, whatever. So if you have a bunch of table views that all kind of look the same, make that something separate, make that reusable because it's going to save you time. So that's kind of my rule of thumb which has worked out pretty well (laughs) because then, you know, if you do something only twice, it's like, well, okay, there's a little bit of copy paste here, but it's only in two places. They're still kind of different, even though they might look the same or have some stuff in common, but you know, third time's usually the charm. I will say it once and I'll say it many times. Copy paste is code reuse. (laughs) 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 One time is fine. Two times. No copy paste inheritance. There we go. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I, so I'm actually with Michelle on that, though. I think twice a good, there's a good argument to be made for using something twice is still sort of under the bar where the extra work and complexity that it takes to factor it out is worth it. But more than that, you've kind of hit that bar. Yeah, I think that you can do premature optimization very easily. You have things that are similar, but they're only incidentally similar. They're actually very different, and they'll expand in different directions. But if if you wait two or three times before you actually abstract them out, then you're in a lot better shape. But if you do it too soon, then things get complicated. You can overcomplicate what you're trying to do. I'm curious, though. I mean, I've worked on some systems that had a lot of things that were highly coupled. And when we started refactoring things out, it was exceptionally painful. And so is there a point that you can get to to where maybe two times isn't quite enough to justify the refactoring? It is various depending on the situation. And every code base is different. Every code base has its own established patterns for doing things. If the code base was written in such a way where there's not a lot of inheritance, for example, I've built apps that have like, you know, kind of a view controller based class that does some really basic things that like, you know, every view controller tends to make network requests. So we'll put that in a base class and that kind of stuff. But if you're working with something that doesn't have that, yeah, you kind of have to be really diligent. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it's just drawing the line and saying, well, how similar are the use cases for these things? And is it going to take us more time to make this thing flexible enough for all of those use cases rather than just special casing it? And I find that a lot of times you can kind of do it partially. So you can have like a 
network session manager or something that like you have like a base view controller that's like a network view controller and it only has a reference to like a session or like an NSURL session or something. And that might be all you really need. But then, you know, there might be things where, oh, well, every time we show this kind of screen and there's like four different ways we can show it, we do a lot of the same stuff. So it's, you kind of just have to be able to see the reuse patterns within your own app. And I find that when you have a really good product spec and a really good user flow that you can work from, it helps immensely with this kind of thing. Because then you can see, oh, hey, we have three table views that look almost exactly the same and are showing the same data. So easy. But, you know, sometimes you don't know. So you just have to kind of go in and be like, well, what's common? What's going to be useful to have everywhere? But then it's also optional. So if you have like a network view controller class, you don't need to use that in every single view controller. There can be exceptions, but then it's just figuring out what you want that to be. I think one thing you mentioned, it's very important. It gets lost on people that there's no perfect patterns for, for doing this. It, it's all dependent on the app that you're building. You might have a lot of repeated things that in a different app you may not be repeating. So it, it's important to code your patterns around what your app is actually doing, what parts change fast, what parts don't get touched. Well, and there are different kinds of similarities too, right? I mean, some of them are that this behaves just like this other thing, except for maybe in one or two instances. In other cases, it's, well, it's doing more or less the same thing, but it operates on a different type of object or, you know, a different class. And so you have to look at those different things and decide, okay, well, the first case works really nicely for inheritance. You know, it, it acts the same except for one or two exceptions. So I'm just going to inherit and override uh, versus the second case where maybe you want to do something that's a little more akin to a dependency injection or something like that. Mm-hmm. And this is also where something like the decorator pattern, I think, can be really, really, really useful. Like, we love categories. So just, you know, giving yourself, it's a little bit, you know, sometimes dangerous just because you're creating a category on UI view controller, which eh, some people don't like doing that. But in situations like this where you really want to create flexibility, categories are fantastic. Um, because you don't have to use it. It's there, and you can use it where you need to, but, you know, you don't need to go out, create you know, base class or, you know, an entirely separate library to just be able to do this one thing all the time, which like I use a lot for like loading states. So a lot of apps, they'll have like a pretty standard view to show when you're loading. So you have like either class on your view controller or something else where you're just like, hey, configure this for a loading state. Because they're all pretty much the same. So it's nice to be able to then change once, change everywhere, which also lets you go a lot faster. So let's step back a bit. What is the decorator pattern? An objective C there categories, um, which is our most commonly way of using the pattern. Decorator is adding methods, properties to a specific object without actually creating a subclass. So do you wrap it in some kind of wrapper object that passes through everything except the things that you care about, or...? Not usually. It's usually just like, I'm going to create a new method on UI view controller that's, you know, show loading view. Okay. Or something. Um, and then you just import the category and then use the method where you want or not use it. Like if you don't import the category, you don't need to use it. If one screen has a different loading view, like you can just not use it. But it's available to all UI view controllers then. Gotcha. Chuck, what you, what you asked about is usually called composition. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And it's really sort of for a different scenario. Got a really dumb question, or maybe a naive question is, is there any mechanical reason why categories is, is tricky to use in a library? I seem to remember there's something where if you include a category, but you don't, if you include a library that has a category, but then you don't use it, then it doesn't show up or something. There's some like weird objective C thing with categories in static libraries. Am I imagining that or misremembering it maybe? I know that there are some problems with naming because objective C isn't like, essentially namespace. So if you create a method in a category that happens to override a standard method or Mm. override a method you've had yourself, then it just has kind of funky implications because it'll, the implementation that will be used is the one that's loaded last. And there's no guarantee of which one's going to be loaded first or last. So that's usually more of a concern rather than the whole importing problem. Um, especially in terms of we don't know what internal categories Apple uses. 
So if you accidentally override a method that is an internal Apple one, like that's kind of a problem. <laughs> Actually, I found an internal category once the wrong way. And it's not a secret internal category, but way back in iOS 3, they didn't implement a first object on NSRA. Oh. So I was working some code that, oh, I'll, I'll just implement this and left it in and they didn't fix like the case when there's no elements. So it just crashed and it worked fine up to iOS 8 and the app just started crashing. So that was about a one day debugging session. Yeah. yeah so in that case, I guess the category method, because first object was in, in foundation since I think like iOS 4 maybe even, and maybe they moved it out of the category and into the class. And so your category was now overriding it where it wasn't before. And that's certainly a problem. Pete, the thing you brought up first, I think, is um, that if you build a static library with a category in it, you have to pass the dash uh, obc. Yeah. yeah. Ah, that was it. That was the yeah. thing I was remembering. So it's by default static. When you import a static library, it doesn't define linker symbols for each function. So you just need to tell it, do this, which is why anytime you're using something like CocoaPods, um, if you go through and actually check the uh, XC config that ends up coming in, you'll pretty much always see the object, objc compiler flag. That's why I, I think I remember I discovered this in the world before CocoaPods when every single library that you used had instructions in the readme that was like, go here and then type in dash objc and type in dash all underscore load and like all sorts of other other stuff that we don't have to worry about anymore if we're using something like CocoaPods. Hooray. Mm-hmm. Well, now we have frameworks, right? So we don't even yeah. have to worry about Oh, yeah, that's true. Period. Which is nice. <laughs> so I've got a, a question. I think you kind of you hinted at this earlier and you were talking about sharing. There's different kind of things that you can extract or reuse across applications. There's stuff like the, on the one extreme, there's stuff like the network layer, right, which is at the bottom of the stack, if you will. But then you also mentioned sharing UI across applications. Like, is that something that's, I'm, I was actually a little bit surprised to hear you say that, that you've done that where you've actually extracted bits of the UI into, into a library. Is that, is that feasible or is it, or is it, I guess, obviously it's feasible because you've done it, but is it more painful to do that than extracting like a, a network layer, for example? It can be really painful if you have two different teams working on two separate apps, but share UI code just because people forget these things. They forget that it's used sometimes. So you you just add like another import header and then all of a sudden the other app can't build it. But in terms of, so it's, it's more of a people problem than like an actual code problem. Because if you are sharing something like UI code, hopefully you have like style guide and conventions and a good foundation for what good code looks like and what patterns that you like as a development team. So it shouldn't be foreign. If like one app, for example, is using Reactive Cocoa and MVVM and another app isn't, well, <laughs> you probably should talk. <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> as teams get bigger, you know, people move around at companies, they'll work on one app, they'll work on another app. Um, so you kind of want to have your things internally just be as consistent as possible. Um, so if you're doing that, then sharing something like UI code is pretty easy. There are some definitely gotchas just because of like, if you want to share a storyboard or a nib, then you have to have a bundle and then you have to load stuff from the bundle. Um, you need assets and all of those things, which complicates things a little bit more. So it works better if you're just writing all of your UI code by, or your UI code by hand, uh, which people still do, you know, but it's, I'd say it's more of a people problem than a technical challenge. That's been my experience too, but I think the framework support in iOS 8 does make some of this particularly related to UI code easier because you can put assets like nibs or storyboards or images mm-hmm. or whatever into your framework resources. Absolutely. Frameworks are going to make some things a lot easier, for sure. That leads me to something I wanted to ask about, which is as we record this, I think maybe just yesterday or today, CocoaPods has pushed out a new release that adds Swift support. It also adds support for frameworks. But how, how do you, so what are some of the mechanics of actually sharing code between apps that you use? Just, you know, dump this, dump the source code in both projects, submodules, CocoaPods. Yeah, no, please no submodules. <laughs> Especially because once you get to the point where you have submodules that have submodules, like doing any sort of de- like more than one level deep dependency management with submodules, I think everyone has a story to tell on how that's just been a problem. But I am a huge fan of private CocoaPods. Um, there's kind of two different ways that you can set this up. And whether or not you use frameworks is entirely up to you. Um, it's now an option. So you can kind of 
look at what libraries it, like how the libraries work, um, see if the new framework stuff is cooler. If you're using Swift, like you kind of need to use frameworks. So the two different ways of using CocoaPods internally without, you know, public being, having your pod live on the open source uh, repositories is, so the first one is the super, super, super simple one, which is you have a Git repository, or it could be Subversion, Mercurial, any of those. And then in the root of the repository, you have pod spec. And then you just kind of work as you would normally build it as a library. You can have a sample project. And then the pod spec just has, you know, the normal information that you would need to add that to a project. Um, and there's a good guide on the Cocoa Pods guide site on how to create a pod spec. I think we're going to be redoing it soon to make it even better. So you have your pod spec. It's just living in a repository. And then when you want to use that in your pod file and the projects that you want to import that code into, you just reference that Git repository. And usually a tag, because, you know, one of the really, really good things about using CocoaPods is everything is tied to a version number. Um, so if you're writing, again, a networking library and the payload changes, you can bump up the version in the pod spec, update the tag, go back to your project, change what tag you're looking at, run pod install, and it'll install the newest version. So that's kind of the really simple way without having to worry about, you know, all of these other things. But it it's still kind of weird if you have a private library that depends on another private library because you then have to import both of them because it doesn't see the, the second one down as well. So in that case, if you're starting to build up a large number of libraries and you have libraries that depend on other libraries, then you can make your own spec repository. So kind of like the CocoaPod spec repository on GitHub, um, you can create your own tiny internal one. Um, please do not fork the main one. <laughs> People actually do that. <laughs> you don't need to fork the main one. You can just add another spec repository via the command line, and then it'll download just like it does for the master repository. It'll download all the specs, so you'll be able to declare your dependencies just like normal. <laughs> like you don't have to do anything special. It'll just kind of work like if you were using something open source, but it's closed source. Okay, so if you have, say, one app you're working on and you want to break out a component for a different application, what's the process for getting the code out there? You create the spec repository, you copy the source code over, create the the spec. How, How does that work? It depends on how you want to structure things. I've done private pods where the source code for it lives inside of an actual app repository, but that you tend to have the people challenge where someone will be working in a class that's used by another app that's in that pod, and they'll import something from, you know, the rest of the app that's not actually supposed to be in the pod, and then you have problems building. So what I like to do is create a separate repository just for the reusable code and then have both apps point to that one. There's ways to do it where you can still keep history, but usually what you end up doing is, you know, taking it out of the first app, doing an initial commit to a new repository, and then just having both apps update their pod files to connect to the new repository. And that also helps because then you're not dealing with like mixing up your tags. So usually, at least in, in environments that I've worked in, every time we do a release, we add a tag so that, you know, this version is going to the app store. We want to be able to, you know, concretely be able to see the code again at the app store version, so you create a tag. But private pods also use tags, or pods in general use tags. So then you're kind of mixing in the app release tags with the library release tags, and that just kind of gets a little messy over time. So I generally like having the code in a separate repository, um, whether or not you create your own spec repository depends on how many libraries you have and how dependent they are on each other. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yes. I'm just wondering, because I did a lot of weird things trying to do this the first time I did it. Do you have any lessons learned on easy ways, like patterns, to take, break up small functionalities once you decide that, you know, this model class, we're going to use this um, with other apps? Do you have any, like, steps that you learned I find it easy when working on a new or, you know, trying to refactor out a component is to get the code separate as soon as possible. Even if you're just creating a new Xcode project and just literally copying files over, because like the tools that we have for detecting imports that shouldn't be there, you know, other class dependencies that we might not 
be aware of the first time through. As soon as you isolate the code, those problems become much more apparent. So it's a lot easier to go through and say, oh, hey, looks like our models are actually making calls to the network. So, you know, if we want our models to be separate from our network, like we're going to need to figure that out versus you kind of are trying to do it within the same project, but the thing is still building <laughs> because, you know, the other class is still there. So separating out as early as possible. And then there is a way to do a local pod using the path option. And I'll make sure there's a link to the guide on private pods in the show notes. So you can have just files on your computer and you can have them linking in as a cocoa pod, but you can still like actually edit them in Xcode and have it be like your real stuff instead of your editing the code that was downloaded, which you know, you'll commit and then you'll update. Then you're like run pod install and then your changes will be overridden because it redownloaded it from the net. So yeah, I got in a state where I was fixing something in the pod. They had me to copy paste what I fixed into my actual repository, pushing that up and downloading again. And something with the local repository, you don't do that. So yeah. Path is your friend. <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah. I think that's make your much easier. That's something that I've seen like in a ton of different, Ecosystems is that same problem. I've seen, like you have the same problem with Ruby, with Gems, and with Java and and Jars. Is is that getting a nice workflow for switching between just like consuming a library that someone else is working on versus like wanting to make a little tweak to the library? I think it, it always feels like it's slightly clunky. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Do, do you know what I mean? Like switching between I just have a dependency and I want to pull it down and use it, and then oh wait, I need to make a small change, but I also need to make sure that I've synced up other changes that other people are making to the same library. It, it can be, I guess that's one of the frictions that you you just have to deal with when you are decoupling these things. Yeah, and then it's also you can kind of mitigate that by doing something like having a really good code review process. So the way that I'm used to working is, you know, regardless of what your change is, it always goes on pull request. I think the only time we push directly to master is when you're updating tags because it's a tag. So everything has to go through that process. And then, you know, as you're doing small bug fixes, you can either have a local copy checked out or there's a way to skip over using a tag and just always download the latest copy from our repository. And you can work either of those ways until... Like you fix all the bugs and everyone agrees that, okay, it's time to bump the version and then update the library and the apps using the library to the newest version. How would that work with the pull requests if you, so let's say I'm, I'm working on my app and I need to, in order to complete some piece of functionality, I, I need to modify this shared library. If I'm not able to do that and, and push the change directly into master, does that mean that on my app I would point to a something in a in a branch while I'm waiting for that pull request, or would I just have to wait for the pull request to get merged before I can kind of push my changes to the dependent app? Yeah, you can specify a source for a pod by a tag, a branch, or a commit. So you can kind of gotcha. choose what is the best for what you're doing. Like if you're constantly iterating, something like a commit's probably not the best. So then you can just specify a branch and go through and just every time you run pod install, it'll get the latest commits on that branch. It defaults to master. So if you just want to get the latest on master, you can also do that. So there's definitely ways to do it. It's just, you know, a lot of installing pods. (laughs) So I should ask the question, CocoaPods, you commit them to source or not? I used to be in the camp of no, 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 that's a terrible idea. And then I started having people like designers and product managers wanting to build on their own devices, which, you know, some people would be like, that's a terrible idea. But, you know, when you're moving really fast, sometimes you don't have time to spend 15, 20 minutes to cut a new build, upload it to your distribution, you know, do the version bumping and all of that stuff just so that they can, you know, the designer can go and double check that the screen you're working on is pixel perfect. So having them checked into source is useful in that situation. Also, if, again, you're going back to the whole release tagging, if you push a version out to the store, then you are doing a bunch of work, you've updated a bunch of pods. Yeah, you can go back in time, and then once you're at that tag that was the release and then rerun pod install, like there is a very slight chance that a source might be removed, especially if you're using a closed source library. Google Analytics... Actually, no, not Google Analytics. There are some companies that will only let you download the newest version of a library. Google Analytics doesn't do that 
anymore. So that can also be a problem because <laughs> now there's this third party library that you're using, but you can only get the newest version and the version that shipped with the app was different and the APIs are different. So now you're not compiling. So yeah, there's definite benefits to checking pods in. And I'm now in that camp. When I was in the other camp, it was more like it's really quick to clone. We don't have to worry as much about the sizes of your repository. One company I worked at, we were actually hosting our own Git server. So that was actually something we kind of cared about. But now I'm firmly in the just check it in. But we always make sure that that's done in its own, like adding a new pod and pod installing is always its own pull request because I haven't seen any tool for looking at pull requests, you know, GitHub, Bitbucket, or any apps that can properly hide like the pods folder changes. <laughs> so it'd be like looking at those pull requests and there'll be like a bunch of changes. And then like, you know, depending on the size of the pod, anywhere between, you know, five, 10 files. And if you're pulling in a big one, you can sometimes have like a hundred files <laughs> yep. and you're just like, Remove well, AF networking. Huge. <laughs> yeah. So it's <laughs> like that kind of, it's just noise when you're trying to actually do a pull request. So uh, we've started just making those separate. And if you're adding a pod, that's its own pull request. If you're integrating a pod, like if you're adding it and you're integrating it and you want to do that in one pull request, then they need to be separate commits um, so that the reviewer can just look at the commit that actually changes your code instead of looking at all the pod stuff because there's still no way to hide it, unfortunately. <laughs> That's a smart approach. I just scroll down forever on GitHub. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've had the problem where we added one pod one time that had dependencies. So the pull request was too big for GitHub to show all the files. And it was not showing files that were actually changed by developers. Like the actual changes of integrating were missing from the thing that it was showing. So it, it's just not great. <laughs> that sounds like a good way to pass bad code through. Looks good to me. <laughs> it unfortunately is. I do not recommend doing that, though. It's the nuclear option. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, another benefit of committing your pods, it, one thing that you can go back in time a lot easier, so if you want to do a, get bisect. But mm -hmm. when Xcode changes, pods changes, then you don't have that dependency on everyone having to be on the same version, which you can be a pain. Or the build server having to be on the same version. You can have one person who can be the pod master, add whatever they need to add, and go from there. So it, it simplifies the team dynamics around CocoaPods, which can be a real pain, especially yeah, when Xcode updates. You, you still have some of the problems between Xcode versions. Like, you open a storyboard or a nib, it's still going to update that stupid version number. <laughs> yes, it won't go yes. away completely. And, you know, different versions of Xcode still throw different warnings, especially when you're, you know, doing, like, if you're doing Swift everyone on your team needs to be on the same version of Xcode because you're then working with different versions of Swift. So unfortunately, Xcode is still a bit of a hurdle for large teams. <laughs> this is true. I, I would be so much happier if they separated out the compiler, like the dev tool chain from the UI. Cause I, like it just, it's so stupid that we have to download this huge four gig app in order to essentially to update the, the compiler tool chain. It's probably like about 20 megs. Like, why can't we just keep that and check it into the repo? Yeah. File a radar. <laughs> I'll give it a plus one. What do you want us to do, Pete? <laughs> I want you to listen to me whine. What's with Swift crashing? Yeah. <laughs> What's with that? Uh, I don't know. I'm just, it drives me bonkers because I'm so used to, like, the way I would solve this in other ecosystems is I would use a virtual machine and I would just deploy all of the dev tooling to the virtual machine and everyone uses the same virtual machine and you're done. But you just can't do that because of Xcode. It's all Xcode's fault. Are you listening, Apple? <laughs> <laughs> You'd hope I'm so. Gonna, I'm going to make a t-shirt or a sign or something and then just, just drive down to Cupertino and stand outside like a crazy person. I'm not sure if that will work. Well, you'd have to find the right building because I don't know what building dev tools are in. <laughs> and there's a lot of buildings, and now they have like satellite campuses and stuff because they're overgrowing. So I guess you I need could to just do a little wait. bit of research. When's uh, when's WWDC this year? I could just get the t-shirts printed and just hang out outside the Moscone. Yeah, just, you totally could. Just yell yell stuff at anyone that's got one of those "I'm an Apple person" badges. 
Well, there are people like that outside of Moscow. Right. So. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Like, that's basically just defined San Francisco, right? You might be the only one that's yelling about Xcode complaints, but you'll Maybe fit that's, in. Not the that's only what one. I need to do. I just need to get an Xcode, the Xcode t-shirts printed and then just give them to all the crazy people in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like your style. <laughs> That'll work. So I had, I think we've, we've touched on this a, a few times as we've been talking about it, but there's, there's like a lot of kind of team uh, collaboration aspects to this. Have you ever seen, so I've been really getting into this, the kind of the Spotify model of kind of arranging teams recently. And one of the things that Spotify say they do, which sounds crazy, but apparently this is what they do is they have like a team that owns like the search bar and they have a team that owns, you know, like the playlist, not just like the playlist as a concept, but that area of the, of the application. Do you think, it's feasible to do that with an iOS app with these kind of tools where you could like literally have, let's say you, it's a huge app. Let's say it's, I don't know, Facebook or, well, the Spotify app, I guess, on iPad. Also just separate out each of the different parts of the same screen and, and put them in different cocoa pods. Or is that just crazy tool? <laughs> that would be a really interesting way to do it, but I could definitely see, you know, the tool becoming a bit more cumbersome, especially when you're, you know, trying to do a quick iteration. There's definitely ways to solve those kinds of problems. And I'm pretty sure every development company does it differently because team structures are different. And, you know, obviously the code bases they're working in are different and they want to do different things because, you know, software is not the same everywhere. So there's definitely pieces that I think could benefit from that kind of thing. Like if you're working on the Spotify app and you have different ways of getting to a screen that does streaming, you know, having that being encapsulated because like, oh, we're on the radio. I don't, I don't know how this works, of course, but if you're on like, oh, we're on the radio team, but radio also needs to stream music and streaming is a different team. Being able to see how to connect those two pieces and also seeing things like documentation on like, oh, this is how you start a stream. This is the method that you should use to present, you know, a view controller that shows the little thumbnail of the album and like a play button, that kind of stuff. So there's definitely opportunities, but it really depends on a lot of other people things. And having an app that is entirely CocoaPods, I think would probably drive people crazy. <laughs> it's like, I need to make a change. So I make it in a separate repository. And then I update the main app that just uses it. Like that just seems, I don't know. That would be kind of cool, though, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. I kind of want to just have fun with that. <laughs> I, I've actually tried that for an app that I worked on, and I didn't end up liking it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does, yeah, it kind of sounds cool, right? You have, like, the app is just kind of a shell, and then you just plug in a bunch of different stuff. I can imagine it being, if it was a huge app, and all you wanted to do was focus on, you know, just your part of it, then... I can see it kind of being helpful, but probably not down to the scale of an individual like the search bar. That just seems kind of crazy. Yeah, but things are just kind of different when you're at a large scale and, you know, have a lot of people. So Yeah. Yeah, things that sound crazy become less crazy when you're at the scale of like a Facebook or something like that. Yeah. Loads, loads of the stuff they do sounds ridiculous, but I guess it... It makes sense at that scale. There's actually a, there's a really good talk by Kent Beck that I just watched the other day where he talks about software G-forces. And the theme of the talk is like the practices that you use, and that would include stuff like how you use CocoaPods. What makes sense when you're releasing once a month doesn't make sense when you're releasing once a week, let's say. And then what makes sense when you're releasing once a week doesn't make sense if you're releasing once an hour. Or, or you know, like, so he kind of talks about how the speed at which you're building software, or at least the speed at which you're iterating on the software, really changes stuff that absolutely makes sense in one context, absolutely doesn't make sense in the other context, and, and vice versa. It's a really cool talk. Cool. All right. Should we do some picks? Sure. Okay. Pete, do you want to start us off with picks? I'm Googling for that Kent Beck talk. Sorry, I'm, I'm binging for that Kent Beck talk. <laughs> <laughs> binging, huh? You're not duck-duck-going? <laughs> No, you know, I still I need to get into DuckDuckGo. I see all these cool alpha geeks using uh, DuckDuckGo, and I feel like I'm missing a trick. I guess I've got... I'm, I'm going to be a bit boring today and have picks that are related to the topic. I'm going to pick two different books. The first pick is a book called Refactoring by the inimitable Martin Fowler. 
so this is like the original. I don't think he, he actually coined the term refactoring, but this is this is a really good. It's very old now, by in software terms, it's probably like twenty years old or fifteen years old. But it's um, basically talks about all of the mechanisms you can use to tease apart your application. So, assuming that you're not starting from a green field, but if you've got like a, a brownfield app, and now you're realizing like, oh, look at that, the networking code is spread throughout my entire code base. How do I restructure my application so that I can pluck that networking code out into a library? Refactoring is a, if you haven't kind of read the book, then that's a good place to start. Another book that's kind of along similar lines is an amazing book by Michael Feathers called Working Effectively with Legacy Code. He talks a lot about taking an exist and getting it into shape and all of the little semi-horrifying tricks you sometimes have to do when you're, when you've got like this old code base and you've realized you need to restructure it. Uh, so those are two really good books. It actually just occurred to me, I might as well just throw in a third book because I'm on a roll. Refactoring to Patterns is an, another book that's really big and really long and a little bit dry to read. But that takes the refactoring idea and focuses specifically on how to introduce a design pattern where there isn't one before. So I was kind of, did a, this book occurred to me when we were talking about how do you kind of introduce like a decorator or something like that. There's loads of kind of detailed use case or detailed worked examples in this, in that book. I think it's in Java or something boring like that, but most of the patents or most of the techniques still apply regardless. So there we go. Some, some boring, but maybe helpful picks uh, this week. Cool. Andrew, do you have some picks for us? Sure. I've got a few picks today. The first one is a WWDC session that's actually from 2010, but it's mostly still very relevant and it's called API design for Cocoa and Cocoa Touch. So this is actually a, a session that Apple did about designing APIs as a developer. And it's mostly sort of about naming convention and structure, and, and they're talking about how they design Coco and essentially why you should do the same things. Some of this has changed a little bit since, and, and of course, Swift sort of changes things because this is all about Objective-C, but I, th- I still think it's interesting and pretty valuable. The next is actually a bunch of slides that I found looking for that talk, and they're Michelle's slides from a presentation she gave, but I thought they were pretty interesting. I wonder, maybe Michelle can chime in if she's actually, if there's actually a way to see this presentation. I can't figure out where it came from. These are just the slides. But anyway, it's, it's a talk she did called Coco Design Patterns in Swift. So it's sort of talking about new stuff that's, that's specific to Swift and how that can be used with Coco to do cool stuff. So that's yeah, Design I think Patterns that, in Swift. I think that video is up on 360 iDev's website. I will look for the link. And then lastly, kind of continuing on with a recent trend, I think for me is um, sort of fun historical technical stuff. And this is not exactly historical, except that I think it's basically abandoned, but it's a project called the Cocotron. And the Cocotron is essentially a re-implementation of Coco for Windows. So you can port your Objective-C Mac app to Windows. And I actually used this for a, for a real project several years ago. And the main thing that I like about it is it's just really impressive because they've this guy who wrote it has re-implemented Foundation and AppKit and other APIs on top of the Win32 APIs, and it's all open source, so you can actually read through and how and see how he did that, which is sometimes instructive. So that's the Cocotron. I'm also going to link an article from Matt Gallagher about how to architect your your app that you're going to make cross-platform with Cocotron, but and some of that's actually generally applicable to factoring stuff out and decoupling it and deconstructing it. So those are my picks. All right, James, what are your picks? Pete, you stole my pick. Uh, I was going to pick Michael Feathers, Working Effectively with Legacy Code. It's a great book for working with old code bases, um, most importantly for giving you permission to do things that seem a little bit wrong, like some of the refactorings and creating classes seem like ugly, but he gives you permission. Yeah. And they're a good idea, so it's okay. So I'll do I'll do a beer pick instead. So the other day I was at went to see the Prairie Home Companion. I was at the Fitzgerald Theater. And they didn't have very many beers there. But one I didn't hadn't had before was a Zombie Monkey by Tallgrass. Very good porter. And if you put a zombie in the title, my hipster flag goes up that you're over-marketing something that doesn't taste good. But this is a excellent beer, kind of a roasty porter. Pete, can you get Tallgrass? No, I've never heard of that one. All right, I out-hipstered Pete today. I win. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Achievement it's, uh, unlocked. It's pretty underground. You probably haven't heard of it, but Zombie Monkey, it's out of <laughs> Missouri, I think St. Louis. So very good. Tallgrass Brewing. Those are my picks. Awesome. 
This week, I was at a couple of conferences. Uh, none of them are very applicable to iOS development in particular. I was at Mountain West JS, NGConf, which is for Angular, and then Mountain West Ruby Conference. But overall, I just want to pick getting out and participating in the community. I spoke, kind of. Uh, Adventures in Angular did a lunchtime panel at NGConf. It was just nice to meet a lot of people. I don't get out to a lot of iOS events, and I'm trying to change that. So if there's an event that you're going to that you'd like to see me at, then let me know. And then if it's doable, then I will try and be there. I've also got a couple of books that I'd like to pick. I've become this awful Audible junkie. So I've been really enjoying the Ursula K. Le Guin series. The Wizard of Earthsea is the first one. The Tombs of Atuan are the second one. Now I'm listening to The Farthest Shore, and I'm really enjoying that. I also listened to The Pixar Touch by David Price. And uh, that one was also a lot of fun to listen to uh, since I was driving to and from downtown Salt Lake like six days out of the last eight. So those are my picks. Michelle, do you have some picks? I do. One is the article about Massive View Controller. It's called Eight Patterns to Help You Destroy Massive View Controller. And it kind of goes into a couple different ways that you can think of separating out your code. The second one is in the latest Objective CIO issue. And it is on how the Artsy team has open sourced their app. And it goes into some technical detail on how they kind of broke things up and kind of the process that they used for getting to actually having a fully open sourced app. And I just thought it was really cool. So those are my picks. All right. Very cool. Well, thanks for coming and talking to us. It was a lot of fun to kind of explore all these different areas of development. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Michelle. All right. Well, we will wrap up and we'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreaksShow.com slash forum. 